all down through the ages of history. And Father, this morning now, as we are gathered together to hear the word preached, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God will indeed, as he always does, he applies it to the heart as he sees fit this morning. Father, as we always say, only he can go into that place where no man can go, and that is deep down into the heart, hearts of men and women and children this morning. So, Father, we pray as he applies it to us that we will indeed, those of us who are saved, will indeed be transferred more and more into the image of your beloved Son. And, Father, we pray this morning, too, for the lost who may be sitting here. We pray that as as the word is preached, that the Spirit will indeed do for them what he's done for every one of us in this room that's saved, if we're saved. And that is, again, open their eyes that they might see Christ. Take that heart of stone out and put in that heart of flesh that they might indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, Father, again, as we, as we are gathered, we pray that you will indeed be glorified, that your Son will indeed be lifted up, that men will see him, and that, Father, <clears throat> the Spirit of God will again convict sinners that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, be with the preacher as he comes. Use him mightily for your glory and for your honor. We ask and pray all these things in the name that the Bible says is above every name, the name in which the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will indeed confess to the glory of God the Father, our Savior, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, this morning we're continuing in our series on the subject of church leadership. Obviously, we're going through the book of Acts verse by verse, and we're enjoying that. And it looks like we might actually finish that in the next year, so that's been a a blessing. But, uh, of course, uh, it's one Sunday a month where Mike uh, steps aside for a moment, and we have this series that we're looking at right now concerning church leadership. And so this is just going to be maybe four or five messages, and we had our first one last time, but for our second message, now we want to look at is the nature of the New Testament churches, and we're going to see how this ties into the subject of church leadership, and last time, if you remember, we looked at the fact that in the New Testament, every time when you see a local church in the New Testament, it was always led by a plurality of elders. And we said that uh, we're not against churches that are led simply by one pastor. There are many faithful biblical churches that are, but we're saying that when you actually look at the New Testament and the way the churches functioned and the way that they were governed, we saw that the churches were always led and shepherded by a group of elders, also referred to as bishops, overseers, or pastors. And those are all different terms in the New Testament that refer to one and the same office, this office of eldership. And then we also saw last time, if you remember, the responsibilities of the elders to the congregation, and then the responsibilities of the congregation to the elders. And one of the things we talked about was it's one thing to know that this is what Scripture teaches about church leadership, but one of our goals was is we wanted to go in depth enough and see all the examples in Scripture so that you would have enough understanding in Scripture to present that to somebody else or to be able to defend that as well against some of the counter-arguments that are used against that. This morning here, it's going to be a little bit different as we touch on a different subject, but as you'll see, it is related. The nature of the New Testament churches, very important. We're not going to be departing completely off of our subject of church leadership, but you will see that the directive of having a plurality of godly men who are set apart to govern each local church best harmonizes with the nature of both the universal church and the local churches in the New Testament. And I hope you'll see that. The New Testament gives us different terminology that refers to the church, God's called out people. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, the church is referred to as a body. If you remember, uh, Paul mentions there, for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. 
First Peter chapter 5 and verse 2 refers to the church as a flock. You remember Peter tells the elders, shepherd the flock of God. And then also in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, the church is referred to as the wife of the Lamb as we anticipate the marriage supper when the church will forever be with the Lord. But we also want to look this morning at how the church is oftentimes referred to in family terms. So because this is not an expositional sermon, I want you to know where we're going. So there's just three parts to this sermon. Number one, we're going to look at the New Testament presenting the church as a spiritual family. Okay, that's number one. Number two, then, we're going to look at different characteristics of this family or different characteristics of the brotherhood. And then number three, we're going to look at how this all ties into the issue of having a plurality of elders in the local congregation. Okay, so let's start with number one, the church as a spiritual family. As I mentioned, the church is referred to in family terms very often in the New Testament. Oftentimes, the terms brothers, sisters is used to refer to those in the congregation. This terminology is used in reference to Christ's followers more than any other type of metaphorical language in the New Testament. In fact, our Lord already began to use this terminology in reference to his followers during his earthly ministry. When Jesus did this, he made a clear distinction in the world between, obviously, believer and unbeliever, but not just in the world as a whole, even within the nation of Israel. He's making a distinction between those Jews who were his followers and those who were rejecting him by using these family terms. For example, look just for a moment at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 46 to 49. And we're going to see that this is a family that no one could just lay claim to simply because they were an Israelite. It didn't matter if they were just of the physical genealogy, the physical lineage of Abraham. There had to be another qualification that was also met. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, here Jesus, of course, is speaking And while he's speaking, some come up to him and tell him about what is going on with his family. Look at verse 46. While he had talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Now, we know about Jesus' mother in Scripture. We also know that he had four brothers. He had at least two sisters, so he had at least six other siblings. And his brother and his mothers now want to speak with him. Verse 47 Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. So you see here now how he uses this family terminology to refer to those who were his followers. Now notice the qualification the one qualification that was necessary to be a part of this spiritual family. It's just in the next verse, verse 50. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, all who are true believers and who practice the revealed will of God in their lives, the teaching of Christ and, of course, those who follow Scripture, are a part of this spiritual family. What's interesting is at this time, we have no evidence that his physical brothers were yet even believers in him. In fact, the Gospel of John makes it clear that they they weren't. But later, of course, we know James and Jude and so forth did become his followers. But he makes a clear contrast that really, who is my family, he says? They are. All who are true believers and who practice the will of God are a part of this family. And this is why Peter could refer to all believers in Christ as the brotherhood, 1 Peter 2.17. And so, if you're here this morning and you're a believer, we are a part of what the New Testament calls the brotherhood. Now, there are some very practical things that we need to understand and recognize when we see this kind of terminology used in the New Testament. What does this mean? What does this imply? Uh, How should we live as a result of this truth? Let me give you a couple points. First of all, this should be an encouragement, brethren, 
For the believer whose relationship with his natural family has been tainted as a result of his faith as a Christian. Now, this has been the case throughout church history. We know it's still the case today. For example, think of a Muslim convert, say in the Middle East or in Africa, who becomes a Christian. Oftentimes, their relationship with their physical family is completely severed, and at times, many times, they're killed by their family or by their relatives in an honor killing. But the fact that they can know that now they are in a spiritual family should always be a great encouragement. Just look back a couple chapters at Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 37. Look here what the call of Christ is. This is in reference, of course, to taking up your cross, following after him. Look at verse 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, in other words, Jesus is making it clear here that oftentimes when you become one of his followers, there's going to be some relationship tension between those in your family who are not. Not not necessarily all the time, but oftentimes that maybe will be the case. Uh, Oftentimes we see in Scripture when a Christian family faithfully lives out the principles that are in God's Word concerning what a husband is to be, what a wife is to be, how the children are to be, how a family unit is supposed to function, we see God's blessing upon that family because that's the way that God created it to function. But if you have an unbelieving family and then you have people that start to be converted to Christ, oftentimes this might cause a little tension, some changes in the relationship. And oftentimes you have people who won't come to Christ because of that family pressure. And so here Jesus makes it clear, you must be willing to give that up in order to be his follower. You must love Christ more than husband, wife, children, parents. He makes that very clear. It must be Christ first. Now just look back here at verse 34. Jesus makes it clear what he came to do. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So again, we see how God's word can bring healing to a family and bring good unity to a family when that's a believing family who's following the principles of God's word. But we also see where there is a division, where there isn't peace, where you have believer and unbeliever oftentimes divided because of the different beliefs and the different way of life. In our culture throughout the years, maybe that hasn't been so great compared to maybe believers in Africa or the Middle East or something like that. But as things keep going the way they are, and as our country keeps being more and more secular, the division is going to be much, much more clear as time goes on, if it continues to go this way. So this should be very encouraging that the believer, although his relationship with the natural family may be tainted, he has spiritual family that is his own as well. Believers have not been left without a family. They have a spiritual family, the brotherhood of Christ. So that's an important practical point. Secondly, in light of these realities, the New Testament is explicitly clear concerning how believers are to treat one another. Think about it. God tells us, you have a spiritual family. So now we have responsibilities and how we are to live in that spiritual family. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one. We are to love one another. That's a direct command from Christ. John chapter 13 and verse 34. Remember what Jesus told us. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. According to the next verse in that chapter, this was to be a testimony to the lost world concerning who Christ's disciples really are. So we're commanded to love one another. So... Just the fact that that's a command from Christ, that's enough to say, okay, I'm going to strive to do this. Secondly, if we do that, we rightly represent Christ in a fallen world. When we don't do that, what happens is is we're giving a wrong reputation of Christ. And we we can expect, expect discipline for that, obviously. But this is something that we are to do, we are to take seriously. It was also to be a genuine love 
that would show itself in action. Okay, a false love is only in word. A true love is in word and action, right? Uh, if you would, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look at, briefly, just verses 17 and 18. In this short letter, as you know, John gives many tests as to one can, through which one can examine themselves to see, do I evidence that I am a true believer or not? But look at verses 17 and 18. John writes, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now this is very interesting because he sets up a scenario here where maybe no one even recognizes this but you, and of course the Lord is watching. You see a brother or a sister has need. Maybe others are ignorant of it, but you see it and you know it. And yet you refuse to do anything about it when it's in your power to relieve the problem. And you don't do it. The word of God says you really don't love the person. So you see, that's, that's a way we can test ourselves. If we do love the person and we see we can help in the need, whether if it's you know, giving money to a needy brother or sister, whether if it's helping someone in sickness, helping someone with their children, whatever it may be, uh, we show that we love them when we fulfill the need that they have. So we are to love one another. Number two, we are to act in such a way toward one another as to reflect family relationships, okay? So we are the brotherhood of Christ, so we're to love one another, and we are to function in that, in, with that family terminology that's given to us in the New Testament. So, for example, you remember what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, remember? Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men... As brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. So you see here, so since we are a spiritual family, there's a way in which the Bible says we are to treat one another. Now just think of these principles, how important this is. The younger men are to respect uh, the older men. That's very important. I mean, consider the culture how it's almost disappeared where younger people actually respect their elders. Now, this is something that's to be taught our children. We're, you're to respect adults. In fact, I just apologized to Brother Howard this last week. We were having a theological discussion. I thought that I, I talked to him in a way that was slightly disrespectful. He's 20 years older than me. I said I wouldn't want someone 20 years younger than me using that tone. But the fact is, is we are to respect those who are older. That's what scripture makes clear. And that's something that should distinguish us between, in the church between believing family and the unbelieving culture around us. Or you think, just for example, I won't go into so much detail. I gave a PowerPoint presentation of this some months ago, but think of recreational dating amongst young people, okay? That's not something that should be practiced in the church. How can you treat a young woman that you're not married to like a sister if you're in a recreational dating relationship with her. That doesn't make any sense, you see. So there has to be these family-type relationships functioning in the church. Even church discipline was never to be carried out in a spirit of pride, but rather in love. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul wrote there by the Holy Spirit. And if a man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet account him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So you see there the term again, brother. So church discipline at times needs to take place, just like discipline has to take place in a household, same way in the household of God, at times discipline needs to be exercised, but it's to be done with a family love. Because the church is a spiritual family that shines as a light in a dark world, believers are forbidden to take other believers to law courts 
to be judged by the unbelievers. At times in life, a believer might find themselves in court. Might be some legal issues going on in business or whatever, but hopefully it's for a good reason. But believer is not to take believer to court to be judged by the unbelievers. That's very, very clear. Listen to what Paul writes. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just wanted to show you that. We're going to look at verses 5 and 8 just briefly. This sadly was going on in the church at Corinth. And so Paul has to rebuke the Corinthians for this. 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, look at verse 5. Paul says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud in that your brethren. You notice again the family terminology is used. Your brother. You're taking your brethren to court to be judged by those who are not your brethren. It was an absolute disgrace that members of the body of Christ would take their brethren to court before the unregenerate, before the unbelieving world, to have their disputes settled rather than having those disputes resolved in the church or between the churches if they're members in other churches. And that's very clear. But here it was in the actual church at Corinth. A clear violation of the principles that Christians are to live by in regard to their relationships with one another. So, brethren, here's the first point that we see. The body of Christ, the flock of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, is a spiritual family. And so we always have to keep this in mind and keep these practical points in our minds and hearts concerning how we are to treat one another. That doesn't mean that everyone in the church is going to be best friends. That doesn't mean everyone in the church is going to have everything in common. You're going to have some that you're closer to than others, but you still function as a spiritual family. Okay, number two. Examples of the character of the Christian brotherhood. What are some examples that we see in the New Testament concerning how the church was functioning because they were a spiritual family. I have seven examples here, and you probably could list a whole lot more, but seven that I'm going to give you, okay? Number one, we see that the early churches usually met in homes for worship. Typically, it's not until about the third century that buildings began to be set aside for worship with Christians. And there are different reasons for that. We talked about it before in this church. You can worship in a building like this. You can worship outside in the field, hopefully not in the wintertime. Uh, you could worship in somebody's home as a church body, but it has to be functioning as a real church. But what we see in the New Testament is believers were willing to open up their homes for the believers to come and gather for worship where they could partake of the Lord's Supper, where they, the pastors could teach and instruct the congregation. Let me just give you four references. Romans 16.5. Paul writes, greet the church that is in their house. That's the church there that met in the home. Also, 1 Corinthians 16, 19 mentions Aquila and Priscilla and the church in their house. So they opened up their home for the church to gather. Colossians 4, 15. Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And then finally, Philemon, verse 2, unto Philemon and to the church which is in his house. House. And so we see this, the believers met in their homes. Uh, number two, we see that the early believers shared material possessions. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, if you would, for a moment. Acts chapter number 2. And we're going to look just briefly, verses 44 and 45. Now, of course, you know this is on the day of Pentecost. And the gospel is preached, about 3,000 souls are saved, about 3,000 individuals are baptized, and they're in the church there in Jerusalem. Verses 44 and 45. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. So you notice how they shared their possessions. Now, I want to mention a few things. 
Number one, this is not communism. <laughs> As oftentimes, communists try to use this passage to say, see, the Bible promotes communism. This is not the government stealing people's money and redistributing it. Okay, that's obvious. This is a local church in Jerusalem. Okay, this is not Washington, D.C. This is Jerusalem, a local church willingly giving to the believers. It's not something that's forced. It's not done by human government. And obviously, you can understand why they did this. Think of the context. You have people that were traveling from all over the place, and that's the different people groups that are described in Acts chapter 2. They come to the feast at Pentecost. They hear the gospel. Thousands are converted. And many of those people are far away from their homes. But now they're staying in Jerusalem. They had needs that had to be met. The believers willingly gave to those needs. Now, there are some that theorize that the believers knew about the message of Christ, the judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem for their rejection of Christ. So they knew that their land wasn't going to be for much profit for them anyway. But nevertheless, whether that's accurate or not, what we see here is they willingly gave in that need. And there may be cases today where a church sees we need to do this. Maybe a serious catastrophe takes place, a serious time of persecution they're undergoing, and we have that example. But in the rest of the New Testament, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus, the church of Philippi, we never see any of the other churches actually doing this. But there was a special circumstance here in Jerusalem, and we see here how the brotherhood was able to help one another in these ways. Acts 4.32, you can see that there as well. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, and they had all things common. So we see that there of the church at that time. Of course, though, in every church in the New Testament, and of course this should be true in every church today, we should be willing to give to the saints who are in need. Romans 12, 13 says that we are to distribute to the necessity of, of the saints. That's obviously a principle that applies to every church at every time, no matter what the circumstance is. So we see here, again, examples of the Christian brotherhood. They were a family, and they gave when there was a need. Number three, <clears throat> this might seem kind of irrelevant, but just think about this. The early church ate together oftentimes. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Look at the church here in Jerusalem. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, there's a reason why this is important. All throughout Scripture, you see that taking a meal together was a sign of fellowship. And so, for example, that's why we read in 1 Corinthians that if there is a brother, a professing brother who's living in sin, idolatry, and there's a whole list given there, don't even eat with such a one. In other words, you're not to have that, that fellowship. You see, but the church here eating together was a sign of that fellowship. That fellowship is a means that God uses to bind the church closer together. And so we see that. Now, this can be done, obviously, like we do here. Oftentimes, we haven't done it for a while. We've had a rodent problem in this church building, so we haven't been able to meet in the back. But Oftentimes we meet in the back. This could be done in people's homes. Oftentimes people invite other believers to their homes. But you see this, this fellowship that develops in the church. Oftentimes, I would say we're at a bigger risk in a town this size than in maybe a small towns throughout, say, North Dakota, that when you have the believers who aren't so close because they're in a bigger town, it's easy to come together and just kind of separate, and then the believers aren't together often. For example... Let's say you have a believing church. I talk about, we talk about the church in New Leipzig here a lot. Let's say you have a believing church out in New Leipzig or something. Is it easier to church hop in Bismarck or is it easier to church hop in New Leipzig? Well, if you're in New Leipzig and you believe the Bible, you probably only have about one choice for a church. <laughs> in Bismarck, you might have a few. And so because of that, it's easy to just 
you know, not be close to the brethren. If a problem comes up, it's easier just, well, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go. The relationships, there's a temptation, especially in our society where we kind of ha all have our own little world, you know, in our houses. And hospitality isn't something that's really promoted. It's easier to not develop those relationships and to be together as often. But we see here in the early church this was something that was important, practical. Okay, number four. The early churches showed hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says, we are to be given to hospitality. And that's really important when you have a biblical, if you have a family, if you have a biblical view of the family, that's so important. Let me just give you kind of a contrast here. Think of the United States today and the typical house, okay? The typical building that we call a house is not really home like we used to say in this country. For the most part, it's a boarding house. It's empty almost all day. The dad's at work. The mom's at the office. The kids are at daycare. The kids are at school. And the house is empty. And then in the evening, after sports and after work and maybe against girls, it's a place they all come together. And even if they're together in the house, it's usually not very long. Junior's watching TV in his room. Dad's watching TV in the living room. Mom's off in the bedroom. It's just a board. It's not really a family anymore. It shouldn't be the case with the Christians. We should be functioning as a biblical family. When you have that and you have a household functioning, you have to give of yourself to have people over, to have that hospitality, to have a meal for them, or to provide a place for someone who has need. That's part of the family ministry. Listen to Lid of Lydia's conversion in Acts chapter 16 and verse 15. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. You see, it was natural for her to say, I want the men of God to come, and I want to provide for them in my house. She obviously already had skills whereby she could be hospitable. Oftentimes, the younger generation has almost no skills when it comes to hospitality. But you see, this is just a given. And it's like that way in many cultures. A guest comes, they just drop everything. They set out the chairs, and you're in their house, and they prepare stuff for you and whatnot. In our culture, though, it's getting a little bit different. So this is important for us as Christians to consider these things about hospitality. Now, number five, the early churches cared for widows who had no means of financial support. You can see that the whole chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, at least verses 1 through 16, you can see that there. First, the children were responsible to take care of the mother who was a widow. If they couldn't, then it was the grandchildren. They were responsible. If the widow had no one to support them, then that fell to the church. They were to support the widow who had needs, and we see that. Now, again, I don't just want to go through these points and just say, look, that's what the church did. No, this is important for us. This is, very, this is a really important point for us. This is an issue that's going to get more and more important in our lifetime if things continue to go the way that they are. Because understand, with the rise of secular humanism and with the change of worldview that's going on in the culture, you can see how this is going to get more and more important. It is right now. We're in a cultural clash right now. Even most people don't even realize it. It's a throwing out of the old Christian way and a bringing in of the secular way. In the secular worldview, human beings really aren't worth anything. You're just the result of an evolutionary process. That's all you are. You're stardust. You have no intrinsic value. So if somebody is older and they no longer are benefiting big business or big government, in the secular worldview, they just become useless eaters. Just do away with them. And you think about it. There's nothing in the secular worldview which would have us to believe that such a thing would be wrong. You have no moral law in the secular worldview. So you see this more and more happening where you have euthanasia is being promoted as a good thing. What was that up in Canada? I think a couple months ago, there was a lady who was waiting so long just to get some kind of a wheelchair, I think, electronic thing to use around her house. And it takes so long for them to get it to her. And because of this, they recommended she could just kill herself. She could go on to the local place where they do that, and she could you know, be euthanized. 
This is something that's picking up more and more, so it's going to be very important, at least for the next generation, absolutely for sure, if things continue to go the way they are, to be able to take care of those who are elderly. Now, there's other reasons for this, too. We have, of course, the lie of overpopulation. Uh, Malthus, from the 1800s, was completely wrong. Remember what he said? He said that as population goes up, the production of food is just like this, and it's not enough, and we're going to be overpopulated. Well, that was completely wrong. But you see that since the 1800s, as population has gone up, the amount of food that we have has gone up. We've been more productive. We've been able to do that. We are not even close to being overpopulated. God, who said, be fruitful and multiply, knew what he was doing. That's not a problem. Then, of course, you have the problem of supposedly we're overpopulated because of the climate change hoax. <laughs> the climate change hoax. Back in the 1800s, as you may know, Karl Marx and his friend, Frederick Ingalls, they wrote that paper. The smoke that's coming out of the factories, it's going to block the sun and we're all going to freeze. And they saw this is a way in which we can get control of everything. What was it back when, Howard, when you were young? Wasn't it... Global cooling was supposedly the problem. We were all going to freeze. Ice age. When I was younger, then it was global warming. We're all get, it's getting too hot. Well, now since the ridiculousness of that has been brought out, now it's climate change. If it's too hot, climate change. If it snows, climate change. There's a tornado, climate change. There's a hurricane, climate change. If it sprinkles outside, climate change. The flooding that took place, what was that, not so long ago, a few weeks ago in California? Climate change, climate change. You had worse flooding in that same area in the middle of the 1800s. Did man cause that? No. You see, pure mythology. Climate change is pure mythology. How come in the Middle Ages you had grapes that were being harvested in England? You had places that were being planted and farmed in Greenland that you could never plant or farm now because it was warmer than it is now. You see, it's a hoax, and it's a game by which, what's the purpose of it? Control. Control. And let's cut that population down. We have too many people. And because of this man-made climate change, don't have any kids. Have just a couple. We're overpopulated. But, of course, it's all a lie. Abortion, war, pandemics, certain types of vaccines are all for the purpose of cutting the population down. And, of course, euthanasia. That's the next. Many of these globalists, they want to lower the population down anywhere between 500 million and 1 billion. That's what they want. I'm not saying they're going to be able to do it, but that's why they're promoting these lies. Yeah, let's start with them. Absolutely. So the church needs to take this seriously when we consider taking care of the elderly. Number six, early believers were commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss, Romans 16, 16. Of course, that was a cultural way of greeting somebody warmly. And the next uh, sermon on this will probably talk about the differences between church custom, cultural custom, how you can find that in scripture, how you can know the differences. But we see that warm greeting was a way of greeting a fellow member of the family. Finally, number seven, early churches disciplined sinning members. We see an example of that again in 1 Corinthians 5. A man had to be disciplined out of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 it seems that this same man repented and was welcomed back into the church as a result. The church was then told by Paul, confirm your love toward him, and the one whom they forgave of anything, he would also forgive. So after this man exercised genuine repentance of his sin, he was joyfully welcomed back into the church and was forgiven and loved just like the rest of the congregation. So we see what a great family love here is to exist among God's people. When there was repentance, they were brought back in. So, brethren, we see the church is a spiritual family. Secondly, we see some of the characteristics of it. I gave seven of them. Now, finally, the third point of the sermon, how the nature of the churches relates to eldership or those who minister to the flock as pastors in the church. Here's the point. Once the true nature of the New Testament church is understood, 
And the nature of the way in which the local churches themselves are to be led also becomes more clear. When local churches are being shepherded by a plurality of godly overseers, the true nature of the local church is best promoted. Now remember, we mentioned before some claim that the qualifications for pastors apply today, which they do, but they say that the eldership structure does not. But you actually see they both go together in scripture. We never have evidence that either one was to be done away with. 1 Timothy 5 talks about the elders who are, to, who are to be supported, those who are faithful, those who work hard. They obviously meet the qualifications, but those same men were a plurality. They were elders. Paul appointed in the churches elders. He would have that. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. We saw that last time. Again, one reason for this was because the form of church government in this way is in harmony with the understanding that the local church is a spiritual family under the authority of Christ, who is ultimately head of the church. This is why the New Testament church was not divided into sacred priestly members and lay members, unlike under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, that's what God had established. In the New Covenant, it's a bit different. Now, we still oftentimes use that terminology. We talk about, people talk about laity and clergy, but actually those terms are not in the New Testament in that way. To put it another way, the churches of the New Testament were non-clerical. No clerical hierarchy existed in the New Testament congregations. I'm just going to quote here from a best-selling book. It's out there on the, on the table. And uh, page 32, just kidding. This one here, Church Leadership. I quote in here from Alexander Strauch. And let me just quote to you what he writes concerning this issue. Quote, biblical eldership cannot exist in an environment of clericalism. Paul's employment of the elder structure for government for the local church is clear, practical evidence against clericalism because the eldership is non-clerical in nature. The elders are always viewed in the Bible as elders of the people or elders of the congregation, never elders of God. The elders represent the people as leading members from among the people. When establishing churches, Paul never ordained a priest or cleric to perform the church's ministry. When he established a church, he left behind a council of elders chosen from among the believers to jointly oversee the local community, Acts 14.23, Titus 1.5. Obviously, that was all he felt a local church needed. Since the local congregation was composed of saints, priests, and spirit-empowered servants, and since Christ was present with each congregation, in the person of the Holy Spirit, none of the traditional religious trappings such as sacred rites, sacred buildings, or sacred personnel, like priests, clerics, or holy men, were needed, nor could such be tolerated. To meet the need of, for community leadership and protection, Paul provided the non-clerical elder structure of government, a form of government that would not demean the lordship of Christ over his people or the glorious status of priestly, saintly body of people in which every member ministered. So in other words, the only form of church government that is truly according to the New Testament is that of a plurality of elders, non-clerical elders. There was no need for a pope or clerics or a priesthood as would exist later in the Church of Rome. Not only were such concepts never needed, they were also not tolerated because it goes against the nature of the church's in the way they were to function. The eldership form of church government keeps us from the danger of demeaning the lordship of Christ over his people and from exalting anyone to a superior status. We now understand then the nature of the local church for what it truly is. It's a body of people where every member is spiritually gifted to minister. Now, go to Matthew chapter 23 for a moment. I want you to look with me, beginning at verse 5. Here, Jesus is warning against the Pharisees. And look at what he says and how his disciples were to be different than them. Verse 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. 
They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So obviously there are rabbis. There were rabbis at the time. There are fathers. There are masters in life. But what Jesus is saying is in the local congregation, there was to be a different example that those who are brothers and sisters were to follow. They were not to act like the rabbis of the first century. For this reason, early church leaders resisted special titles, chief seats, and sacred clothing. Lordly terminology for leaders was also something that was resisted. Now consider also a couple other principles that Jesus laid out for his disciples. Look at John chapter 13 for a moment. And look, we're going to look at verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> we must be reminded that although in a local church everyone is spiritually gifted to minister and the church is a spiritual family, there still are leaders. There still are pastors, bishops. There is a leadership shepherding teaching role and position and at times they have to exercise authority but the way in which they function is not a way that we would call clerical look at uh, john 13 verses 13 through 15 ye call me master and lord and ye say well for so i am if i then your lord and master have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet for i have given you an example that ye should do as i have done to you. So we know that people, everyone is gifted in the church to minister. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 tells us that there are those who are gifted to lead, so they are to lead the congregation, but they would be what we would call leaders among equals. They would be leaders who lead by serving in this way that Christ commanded his disciples to serve. Look back at Luke chapter 22 just for a moment, verses 25 and 26. Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. So we see here the nature then of the leadership. It's one of leadership among equals. Yes, they are to be leaders, they are to exercise authority, they are to shepherd, they are to guide, but it is one of leadership among equals in the family of God. This goes away, this goes against two things. The Gentile way of lording it over the congregation, which Brother Mike oftentimes warns us about as we're going through the book of Acts, and also the concept that the church is made up of equals with no leadership. You see, that's another ditch. Some say, or some practice just leadership, and we would say in a Gentile way that Jesus talks about. But then there's also some who say that the church has no leadership at all. Both of those are wrong. The church has leadership and has pastors, but they function as leaders among equals in the family of God. Now, brethren, let us end our message with just a few practical points. Number one. In light of the biblical nature of the local churches, pastors must always remain humble servants in the church under the authority of Christ. Always. We must always remember what scripture says concerning Christ. Colossians 1.18 tells us there is one head of the church. Hebrews 4.14, there is one high priest of the holy priesthood. John 10, 16, there is one pastor of the flock. Romans 8, 29, there is one elder brother of the brotherhood. 
1 Peter 2, 5 and 6, there is one cornerstone of the building. And finally, 1 Peter 5, 4, there is one chief shepherd. No church belongs to any pastor or even to any group of elders. It is Christ's church in his alone. The elders are simply under shepherds. Jesus says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. That is, if you serve in this humble way. And that we always must remember. Second practical point. When we consider the church as being a spiritual family, we must also always remember the importance of being with the gathered church. Now, when we gather together, sometimes not everybody can make it. Sometimes there's sickness, they're out of town, or the, you know, the weather issues, some live really far away, and so forth, and that's all understood. But if those things aren't the case, we really have no reason to miss gathering together as a church when we gather together, whether on Sundays or Wednesdays, for example. Think about it, for example, just think of the Wednesday prayer meeting. If we're not providentially hindered or out of town, what reason would we have for not gathering together to pray? You know, what better, better thing could we be doing on a Wednesday night than gathering together to pray? What better thing could we do than gather together to grow in sanctification as we hear the word preached? You know something during the times of the Protestant Reformation, for example, in their towns, they had church services usually throughout almost every day of the week for the local people to come and attend. Now, not everybody came, obviously, but it was there. In our day, usually in a church like ours, we only have two days typically that we gather, Sundays and Wednesdays, and we might have a couple conferences during the year. And so what we have to understand is, is that when we're out in a fallen world as we are, and we only meet two times regularly in a week, it's very important to be together. In fact, I heard it said this way recently, that when you come to the church meeting, let's say on a Lord's Day, one of the purposes of that meeting is to repair the damage that has been done to us during the week as we're surrounded by evil and sin and secular humanism. We need all that stripped away again from our minds and hearts to grow in sanctification and to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, you think about it. If during a time like the Reformation, if they were gathering together often throughout the week, if we can gather together just two days throughout the week, if we're not providentially hindered, we really should strive for that because we need to. We really need to. And also... Just certain things to consider. A lot of people just don't know a lot of the information that they should, that maybe they would know if we gathered together as a church. We pray so much for revival today, but did you know about 40% of evangelical married couples in our country use the IUD to prevent childbirth, and the IUD is abortive in nature? We have many people who are sitting in churches who are actually aborting their children by the stuff that they're taking, and yet at the same time we're praying for revival. If the church would educate, and if the sheep would be there to hear these things, we could be more aware. Just an example. Or consider the subject of education again. We talk in here a lot about biblical worldview education, but it goes a little bit further than just that. I want you to think about it. There was a survey that was done. I know surveys aren't always exactly accurate, but this was done pretty carefully. And the question was, is with the iPhone, how often are children in their starting, you know, about age 11, 12, 13, are they seen on their phone, let me put it this way, uh, bad stuff, <laughs> things they ought not be seen, immoral things, and how many of them are addicted to it? It was found about 6% of homeschool children about 21% of public school children, about 41% of Christian school children. So you understand that if your kids are sent out to a public school or even a Christian school, 
not only is it the education that they get that could be dangerous, but the influence from the peers who have all that information on an iPhone can negatively affect the children. You see, we're living in a different day. This ain't the 1950s anymore. And we have to know these things. As the church educates its people, the church has to educate its people concerning these things. But the people also must be there to take in these things. Uh, usually I don't like to use examples for, of myself in a sermon, but I'll just give this because I couldn't think of anything else. That Just to encourage the young people, the young families in here. Some years ago, we were members of the church, my family was, out in New Leipzig. That's about 80 miles from where we lived. And you, you're familiar with that church. Some of you are familiar with Paul. He speaks here at our conferences, and uh, you're familiar with him. And uh, we drove, you know, 80 miles to go there. We went once on a Wednesday. We got back at past midnight. Thought, maybe this won't work. And the elders there told us, don't come on Wednesdays. It's going to be too hard for your family. Just don't do it. Stay home. But on Sundays, when we started there, we were going to the service. And we thought, you know what? If we were there for the Bible study, all it's going to take, it's going to be a big sacrifice. We're going to have to just get up one hour earlier. And you know what? It wasn't really hard to do. We went because we wanted to be there. We wanted to hear the word. We wanted the fellowship. We wanted to praise God. And we wanted it for our children. So they, and we were, at that time, it was just four little ones. Get the four little ones up, dress them up, go some, summer, spring, fall, or winter. It didn't matter. We're going. And our children are going to know this is important. And so we should encourage our young families to consider these things. Because what we, what we definitely don't want is, let me put it this way, the amount of time that parents are with the church, I almost guarantee the children are going to be tempted when they're older to be with the church less than you were. And so we have to inculcate into them how important it is to be with the body. Sunday mornings, Bible studies uh, that happen before this service, the Wednesday prayer meeting, this is important. You know, oftentimes, again, in the Reformation times, people's days functioned according to the way the church was. Oftentimes, people knew what time it was by the church bells that rang. You see, that was their surroundings. That's the world we knew. We're in greater spiritual danger because we're not in that situation anymore today. So we have to prioritize our lives so that this is important for us and the next generation. We're responsible for that. It has to do with prioritizing and what is most important. Some of you in here have said that, that your schedule kind of revolves. Uh, the fixer said that how... If, if a church meeting is canceled, it kind of throws the week off because the church, uh, their life revolves a lot of times around the schedule of the church. Some of you might know this who know history in North Dakota. When settlers would come out and establish these towns, did you know in the early times, a lot of times these towns, the center of the town was the church or the church building. Now that's changed with the secular age. Now what's oftentimes the center of the town? You know, the school, the public school, the government institution. So you see how the church has been pushed aside, and here comes the government, the public school, and the classes, and the concerts, and the sports, the community revolves around the schedule, oftentimes, of the school. So you see how much that has changed. So what we need to do is we need to run parallel to that. We just say, nope, not going to do it the world's way. We're going to do this the biblical way. we got the family, we have the church, we have our business, or whatever we're doing, and we need to function rightly in that way. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2. You know, you even see this on the news. Uh, some of you might get your news sources from the Internet, and I like, I like the worldview in five minutes because the way it categorizes the news, you always hear in there about the church, persecution of the church, things that are going on with families, and then you have some things about the government and what's going on there. So you have a balance. But think about it if you, turn, if you would use Fox News, for example. Almost 100% of the time, the news is about politics. So what does that train the mind? This is the most important thing. It actually trains you to be a socialist in your thinking. It's government 
the news is always about politics, when in fact politics is only supposed to be about, I don't know, 6 to 10% of our lives, you see. So even conservative news stations have a way of poisoning the mind by which they, they picture to us, this is what's important. This is what's important. And we think politics, politics, politics. But that's just a part of life. That doesn't, it's not the most important part. 1 John 2.27 but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. This is a wonderful verse. You know what it teaches us? The Holy Spirit guards the true believer from the heretical errors of false teachers, and no believer is dependent upon human opinions in order to know the truth. But remember, at the same time, this does not contradict the rest of Scripture, which testifies that God has given certain men to shepherd and teach God's people in order that we be not tossed to and fro about by every wind of doctrine. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. You see that. So you got the balance there. So we're guarded by the Holy Spirit, but we must gather together to be taught, to learn. I enjoy studying the Word of God. I, I enjoy studying it for hours. I was up till 1 o'clock uh, Friday night doing it. I enjoy it. But I still need to come, and I need to hear from the elders here. I need to hear. And I always learn something. There's information they know that they've come across that I haven't. And we must gather together to do that. Number three, third practical point. Reminded how the, local, the whole congregation serves. We've been reminded how it's how. The congregation is to be made up of servants who all serve in the church. They're all to serve. You know, throughout history, when the eldership form of church leadership has been pushed aside, and maybe you had just one leader, it's very easy for the church to fall into that. That pastor does everything, and everyone else just becomes church attendees. But that's not biblical. You see, we all are to serve. And the thing is, is it's, it can become obvious maybe in the church, where you are gifted, where you are gifted to serve. Put it this way. You remember the story of John Bunyan? When John Bunyan was brought before the court, and why are you doing what you're doing? You know, his, his church wasn't recognized by the government in England. But he said, I, 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 he can teach, he can minister, he can preach. So because of that, he's responsible to do that in his local congregation. Well, he's thrown in jail because he's not a licensed preacher. But you see, whoever you are, man or woman in this church, where you're gifted, what you're gifted to do, that is what you should do in the local church. And you might be able to recognize where you can serve more than the elders can of the church. Of course, you can go to the elders, talk with them about it. But where you are gifted, serve in that area where God has called you in the church. In other words, every believer should know where God has placed them in the church and how they can then serve in that church. Oftentimes, singles ask, you know, what can they do and so forth in a church. Let me just talk to you about something for a moment. Most believers are called to get married. We talked about that in the church. And then they serve God as a married couple or as a family. Scripture also makes it clear that some are called to singleness, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if a young man believes he has a call to be single or a young woman, this isn't just so that they can go, so a young woman can go, for example, just live in an apartment by herself somewhere, have her job, attend church on Sunday, that's it. No, it's for the purpose of being able to serve the Lord in the church in your singleness, you see. Think of William Tyndale, never married. Certain reasons for that, but gave us the Bible in English. Not the King James translation. A lot of this comes from Tyndale. And think of Amy Carmichael, Gladys Elward, women that never married, but they use that singleness to serve the church on the mission field, working with orphans, you see. So if you're single, you use that to serve God in the church in your singleness, and maybe just your local church here. Or if you're married and you have a family, you use that to serve God in your local church where you are at. Everybody is gifted in different ways. It might be serving, it might be giving, it might be hospitality, it might be cleaning the church building, whatever it is, you serve in that area. It might be simply having children and raising up that next generation for 
the congregation, and wherever they will serve as well. So these are all very important practical things to consider. The whole congregation is gifted as God has gifted them to serve in the areas that he has called each one of us to. Every one of us has a purpose. Every single one of us has a plan. The way that God made us, the way that God designed us to use us in this time, in this day, as he has so ordained. Last practical point. I mentioned last time that a lot of times people might think of studying church polity as boring. But you got to think about it. It really isn't, shouldn't consider it as boring. Because you got to consider when we're talking about how a church functions, we have to remember why there is a church at all. It's because we were lost sinners deserving of hell. We violated God's commandments time after time after time. But yet the Savior came, lived a perfect sinless life, went willingly to the cross, took our sins upon himself, suffered and died in our place, and rose from the dead the third day. And remember what scripture says? Christ gave himself for the church. Those who repent and put their faith in him are forgiven, and they are saved, and they are a part of the church. So then we ask the question, how the church is to function. We know this is important because this is what Jesus died for. And every week now when we come to the table, we remember Jesus Christ was sacrificed for his church. So it is important for us to spread the gospel, to live for Christ, and then to serve him faithfully in his church. This is the call. This is the call for every one of us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you died for your church. We know that you have given to us the word by the Holy Spirit through those who were ordained to pen this word. You laid the directions in there for us. And Lord, it is our desire always to follow the instruction of scripture. None of us do it perfectly. We are all weak. We are all sinful. We are liable to error. We need your grace, Lord, to teach us and lead us in your ways. But we pray that you would help us individually to use the gifts you have given us for your glory. And we know that in using those, there is an eternal reward. We know the world is passing away and the lusts thereof, as your word says. But he who does the will of God abideth forever. Lord, give us an eternal perspective. Help us to not waste life, but to use it for your glory. And may you be glorified in this congregation here and in every one of your congregations scattered throughout this land and around the world. These things we pray now in your precious name. Amen.